Hi, everybody. I'm here today with a story that's really kind of a continuation, but on a really human scale of a story I've done a couple times before. And that is the event that happened in December of 1980 and January of 1981 in England. And it's probably the most accounted for UFO incident, militarily speaking, uh, that we know of. And that's the Rendlesham Forest incident. I interviewed Nick Pope a few years ago on this. And then last year, Jim Penniston, he wrote the Rendlesham Enigma. And today we're going to be talking with Stephen LaPlume, each one coming from a different place and a different point of view in the same incident that happened and what it did to his life and the life of some of the others who witnessed this event. And really it's more a story of his life and how it went upside down and south really fast, taking decades to recover and come to a really sweet spot in the end. So this is a wild journey. So without further ado, let's go to Stephen. Stephen, it's good to have you here. No, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, and also it was Paula Harris, who is a friend, an acquaintance of yours and a friend of mine who put us together because, of course, she's so boots on the ground when it comes to this research. And uh, as we'll, we'll talk about later on, it was really a butt dial that brought this whole thing back around into your life again. Happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a 2 a.m. Oops, I just dialed Paula over in Colorado by mistake. I'll have to call her in the morning. <laughs> she, she called me back and said, this is Paula. Who's this? Because she didn't have my number logged in. So we started talking and one thing led to another. I told her I was trying to write a book and kind of hit a wall. So she kind of led me in the right direction, gave me a little encouragement. And, yeah. and here we are. Well, yeah. you've hit a lot of walls in your lifetime and you have a lifetime that other people see in movies and read about and you think, how's this guy still alive? And so yeah. we're going to talk about your journey and why you feel you're still alive today at the end, because a lot of people are we're kind of looking at ourselves, analyzing our lives, you know, where we're coming from, kind of trying to get some moral bearings back again around the world and certainly in the U.S. And uh, this is a wonderful story of finding one's moral bearings after some major burnouts that have happened in your life. So let's start as a young kid, 18 years old. Um, you were a nurse, a nurse's aide, working with the elderly, and that actually satisfied you. And you think, oh, that's such a warm, sweet, fuzzy story. What could possibly go wrong? Let's go yeah. for it. Yeah, what could go wrong? Huh? Well, um, my, my whole high school career was geared towards me being a licensed practical nurse. And there was a local school. And I thought, great, I'll go to the school for a few years. I'll get my, uh, uh, my degree and, you know, or my license. And um, I really enjoyed, like you said, working with the elderly. It was great. I could listen to all their old stories and gain a lot of knowledge. And, you know, I, I just thought I had a leg up on life by listening to their experiences and how to interact with people and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but then it was, you know, the late seventies, Jimmy Carter was in power and the economy was kind of bad and they ended up closing the school due to budget cuts. So here I am a senior and now I've got nowhere to go. So, um, so my father was in the air force and he was also a police officer. So he would be a police officer full time and went to the reserves once a month to, to do his duty. And, uh, um, I thought, well, maybe I'll just go in the service for a little while, see if I can find myself there, you know? And, uh, and I, I kind of started getting a little attitude towards, towards life in general, because I was like, oh, I just had the rug pulled out from under me. So um, I was 17 at the time, and my parents had to sign for me to, to go into the service. And um, my mother was actually really surprised that I didn't go into the medical field. She thought I'd go in as a medic or something like that. And I said, no, nah, I think I'm going to follow dad's career as a police officer. So I went in as a security specialist. And at the time, they had security specialist, and then they had law enforcement. And law enforcement was more like a regular police officer, but security was like machine guns and uh, security and riding around on Jeeps. And I thought, you know, it, it seemed like, you know, from a young man's point of view, it seemed a lot more exciting. So <laughs> You didn't know yet 
that you were an adrenaline junkie and you were about to really get hopped up. It was just starting that you needed, and we're going to talk about this at the end, a young yeah. man that just needed a lot more stimulation than what life offered, had a bit of a chip on your shoulder from feeling betrayed, beaten up a lot as a kid because your father was a fuzz, a cop back yeah. in the era when it was not cool. And yeah. so you're kind of flexing your muscles a little bit. I went into the Air Force, you know, just kind of like, I don't know, I was very much a mama's boy. And, you know, I was like a band geek and the whole bit. And I thought, you know, I, I need to like man up. You know, I, like you said, I got beat up a lot when I was a kid. And when I got into high school, um, that kind of ended a little bit because I was into uh, cross country and track and I was really good at it. And, you know, so now I was, you know, carrying the school, you know, banner all around and everything. So it was kind of, you know, um, I'd get a little bit of props every now and then from that. So, um, so I didn't get picked on as much. Um, but still, I just, I just felt I needed to get more of my father's approval because I, I just always felt he kind of looked down on me. And he wasn't in my life a whole lot because he was working so much. But uh, um, so, yeah, so I went into the service, figured, okay, I'll be a police officer or a security specialist. And uh, um, just kind of geared my career towards that. And I signed up for six years because I could get extra stripes when I come out of the uh, basic training and have, you know, a little extra pay, that sort of thing. Um, and I actually, uh, put in for the United Kingdom and, uh, uh funny, funny part was I, I didn't understand when, when they gave me my assignment, they said, uh, uh, it just said Unkin. And I was like, where's Unkin? Oh my God. It's probably some Island out in the Pacific. <laughs> it was a <laughs> code, an abbreviation for United Kingdom. And you thought I'm going to Unkin. Where's that? <laughs> exactly. So I, I went up to the sergeant and I was like, where's Unkin? Where am I going? He was like, you idiot. That's the United Kingdom. Go sit down. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I was like, okay. I, I got my posting that I asked for. Um, so, so that was good. And, and I actually, uh, I actually enjoyed this, the, Air Force, I had no problem with it. When I got there, you know, we had in processing for a few weeks. I liked the United Kingdom and I just, you know, everything was going really well. Uh, the only problem I had was I didn't have a security clearance and um, they just said that there was a lot of security clearances they were having to do and mine was sooner or later I'd get it. So they, uh, they didn't have any place to put me because I couldn't work in a security area. I was a security specialist. So what are they going to do with me? So law enforcement was a little short on personnel and uh, they assigned me to the law enforcement, but I wasn't trained in law enforcement. I didn't know anything about how to be a cop. Um, I wasn't qualified on a 38 revolver. So here I am riding around with the police with an M16 machine gun over my shoulder, basically. Oh, great. 18 years yeah. old with no training. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, I ended up just you know, for, for months, I, or yeah, I guess basically months, I ended up just being uh, the break boy. I'd give people breaks to go to the bathroom, give people breaks to go to the chow hall and I'd temporarily stay on their post. And I just get shuffled around uh, the base, you know, from one place to the other, just a kid without a home, basically. <laughs> so. Well, then things started changing and you started having a prominent position there. Uh, once these incidents started occurring. So we don't have to go into great detail. People can mm -hmm. refer to my interviews with Nick Pope. They can also yeah. look at my interviews on this site with Jim Penniston and look at the nature because each person was having a different experience. And I want to get into this part because I think this is an important part. Uh, mm -hmm. There were a few different incidents and it has been said and you, you alluded to it briefly, and Jim did as well, that unbeknownst to you, it appears there were, was a, military, a, a nuclear arsenal under the ground there that no one was aware of that wasn't necessarily, I don't know if it's supposed to be there or not. Am I incorrect on that? Because this plays a big part in UFOs. Right. Um, and I had only heard after the fact, years after, actually, yeah. that I'd gotten out of the service, that there was supposedly nuclear weapons there. I, I right. had no knowledge of that because I didn't have my security clearance. So I wasn't read in on any of that at all. So I Well, there, and the reason I bring it up is it's, I think it's important. And I, I know many, many years ago, it, was, it came to my awareness that a lot of these UFO sightings have classically been around places that have uh, nuclear warheads and military activity going on. And mm -hmm. I think the, the case of Robert Salas there in Montana, where uh, the um, UFO came overhead and started shutting down the nuclear silos, which of course is a very famous case. I've interviewed him as well. 
mm -hmm. I believe in the Gaia archives. Um, this is not uncommon that UFOs show up where we have this kind of activity. So now you're a kid and you, you had two different sightings. One was kind of brief and from a distance, just maybe set that one up quickly. We'll go to the second one and then the spook activity okay. that followed it. Okay. Yeah. Just real quick. Um, we had to go out to the East gate, the infamous East gate and uh, check and make sure the gate was locked. And we were just like hanging around the police cruiser. We looked into the Southern sky and going from uh, West, excuse me, from West to East. Um, um, we just saw kind of like, like when you see in the night sky, you see a satellite just cruising across the sky. But this one just started doing one of these numbers up and down, up and down. And there's no craft I knew of that could go up in a down elevation like that. Um, so it traveled over um, again towards the east. It went over and uh, got behind some clouds over, um, I'm going to say it was over the, the Rundlesham Forest, but it was so high in elevation. You know, it was just over in that area of the, the sky. It wasn't over the forest, you know. So, um, so Senior Airman Palmer, who was with me, he called in and said, hey, Laplume just saw a UFO and threw me under the bus. And I was like, not hey, fair he, he because saw he too. saw it too. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. I looked up, I was like, you saw it too? You know? And he just kind of smirked because, you know, I don't know, nobody wants to be associated with UFOs, you know, uh, especially in the military. So, um, so we had that sighting. Um, officers came out. Um, they went out into the forest, and at the time, I had no idea why they went into the forest because I didn't understand what happened a month earlier because all we had heard was some guys got chased by a UFO, and that it pretty much died there. Um, so the officers put me on the, uh, uh, the East Gate the rest of the night. I had to be out there all by myself, and um, they gave us a starlight scope, you know, in case we saw something. And then about an hour or so later, um, Palmer came back just to check on me. You know, he's just doing his rounds. And um, again, we were just leaning against the car talking and um, out of the, um, the east coming towards the base, we saw a light coming in. And the only thing that we had up at the time was a, uh, a couple of uh, helicopters that the pararescue would use called Jolly Greens. And then we also had a uh, C-130. And when you're on that gate, you can tell the flight path when they're coming in for a landing is, you know, it's always the same flight path coming in right, to, you know, on the runway. And this one was a little to the right. It cleared the trees and it came up the road. And then the next thing you know, I'm looking up, <laughs> I'm looking up at a, at a spacecraft for lack of a better term. Um, it made no sound. Um, it was a structured craft. It had what I, what I perceived to be a hatch on the bottom of it. Uh, we observed it for, less than that, I'd say half a minute or less. I'm thinking maybe 15, 20 seconds. And then Which it, is kind of an eternity when you're having that kind of anomalous experience. And yeah. also tell us uh, the size of it. Um, well, it seemed to me, and I have like a, an issue with the depth perception because I'm looking at a, a night sky and I've got nothing to really compare it to. And um, it, it was no, no more than a thousand feet off the deck and it was probably closer to 500. It was probably closer but I could see the structure underneath it had a hatch and from side to side, I actually had a lot of tunnel vision and I know there were some lights, some colored lights, but it seemed like it was kind of foggy around the edges. And I want to say it was maybe 30, 40 feet from one side to the other mm -hmm. at, at best. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then it, it was over our head one minute and the next minute it was to our right and it start in, it, it didn't have a shape at that point. It was just a bright light and it just started moseying up into the sky real slow and, and, um, where we saw our first sighting, uh, where I first caught a glimpse of the first uh, uh, anomaly, I guess you'd call it, um, it kind of headed off in that direction and it blended in with the stars and it was gone. And that was it. And Palmer said, he turned to me and said, you want to call that one in? And I just went, hell no. And we never called that one in. And in hindsight, we probably should have um, because I, I um, just, you know, for benefits wise and what's going on and the, the history of it, we probably actually should have called it in, but neither one of us wanted any part of it, you know? Yeah, you didn't want that kind of trouble coming your way, but it came your way right. anyway. Yeah. Um, and so what, one of the things I find so fascinating about this particular event is it, it's kind of the anatomy of how an event happens, how the military uh, on both sides, British and American, responded to it. Um, and how a cover-up begins, honestly, how things yeah. are simply shuttled aside to make sure the public never knows. And, you know, some of that has become more public, even though in a somewhat fictionalized way uh, in the history channels, 
um, renderings of Alan Hynek's work in Project Blue Book. They're showing that these things were going on. It's just somewhat fictionalized. But the reality is uh, you were swept into a much larger drama at that part. You started being tailed. You had what you called spooks, uh, the yeah, alphabet yeah. agency people on your back. And let's talk about that because they were infiltrating you, Larry Warren, and the personal lives of people. What, how did they, what were they doing with you? And what do you think they were actually looking for? You were all kids, uh, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, at that point, I was 18 and, yeah, 18 and a half. You know, I was just an 18 and a half year old kid and, um, and very immature, was really homesick, you know, that sort of thing. I, I probably should have waited a few years before I went in the service, actually, and matured up a little bit. Um, but Larry had told me his story about he, they had taken him and they'd interrogated him. And, uh, you know, here, here I am, you know thousands of miles away from home. I was actually pretty scared, I'm willing to admit. And um, um, I noticed that these two guys were following me. And I was like, huh, those guys are just like what we nowadays call mad dog. And, you know, just staring at you while you're you know, walking away type thing. And, but I noticed them on several occasions. And, uh, and I don't know what, I, I don't know, you know, what they were looking for. They never approached me. They never talked to me. But I noticed these same two guys. And uh, one time I went into the uh, all ranks club and I saw them in there and I was like, geez, these guys again. So I, uh, I had borrowed a cigarette because I don't smoke. So I borrowed a cigarette from one of the barmaids. And uh, when one of the guys had gone to the bathroom, I approached the other guy. I figured it was even one-on-one -on -one at that point. And uh, I asked him for a light. He acted like he didn't speak English. So I did the universal, you know, do you have a light for the cigarette thing? And um, so he lit the cigarette and I, I took like one puff and I put it out and I said, listen, I don't really even smoke. I said, but I'm on to you guys, your horrible tales. I, I know you're following me. So the jig's up. You might as well stop. And I just turned and walked away. And, um, and I went behind like some trellis work because there was a, a trellis between the bar and where we could get some food. And I noticed the other guy came back from the bathroom. They talked for a couple minutes and they got up and they went out the back door and which was really odd. And, uh, they got into a, um, um, a Lincoln town car with a, uh, New York license plate. And, and I'll tell you when I, when I had my hand on that handle, cause they, they went out the door and I, I went over to, and I was like, Oh boy, I'm really going to get in a fight. I was all like bouncy, like, okay, here we go. It's time to fight. You know? ready. You were ready to pop them. So at this point I, uh, I had my hand on the door handle. I was like, okay, instead of swinging it open, I'd probably best to just kind of look out and see what's going on first. And I just cracked the door just enough so I could see. And that's when I saw this Lincoln town car and it was the same model as one that my uncle had. So I just recognized right off the bat, it was, it was a Mark four Lincoln and it had a, um, it had a uh, New York plate, as I said, and it drove away. And I thought, well, if these guys are TDY from Germany, why would they be in a car? And it, it nothing made sense. And I was like, all right, these guys are definitely, you know, there's something nefarious going on here. So at that point, I was thinking I, I probably ought to get out of the service or get off this base or do something. So I went to the judge advocate and asked him if I could get out because I was not doing the job I signed up for, which was security. Um, I was doing law enforcement. And he said, listen, all they're going to do is after 89 days, they're going to rotate you back for a day because you, once you're out of your, your uh, field, you know, your specific field for 90 days, then you can go ahead and, you know, I guess that's a breach of contract on the Air Force part. So they said day 89, they're going to put you back on duty with security. Then you're going to go right back to law enforcement. They're going to play a game. So um, I had a bit of a uh, had a bit of an issue with drinking at the time. And, uh, yes, you were becoming a you were kind of becoming an alcoholic along with a couple other buddies. I was de I was definitely a problem drinker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you had that yeah. going on, and again, you're still a young kid, and not you're thinking like kind of like Private Benjamin. It's like, well, this is not what I wanted. Actually, you were scared. You wanted out, but it doesn't work like that with the military. No, and no, it doesn't. Next was downright crazy. I mean, right. I was in this part of the book and thinking, what was this guy thinking? Yeah, well, I, um, what I was thinking was, I, I need to get out of here. And I, you know, I didn't want to go AWOL, obviously. You know, I don't want that kind of trouble. Um, so uh, one night I got really tanked up with a friend of mine and uh, we drank a, well, we drank a whole bottle of vodka, half each, and uh, I, I stumbled my way to the Airmen's Club, or the All Ranks Club, and um, grabbed another beer, and I heard the uh, theme song for MASH, which is uh, Suicide is Painless. There's actually words to that song, 
And I thought, oh yeah, I could pull a clinger. I could get out of here on a psych. So one thing led to another. I went back to my dorm. Um, I got a blade. I sliced my stomach open a couple of times to make sure it bled really good. And uh, the chase was on. The police chased me around the base for a while. Finally gave myself up. But um, the chase itself was crazy. You had this dagger in your hand, this, this knife of some kind. And yeah, it was a big diving acting knife. acting insane, you know? Yep. Yeah. And, and they're uh, it, at you. some point I took the knife and stuck it in a tree. Cause I thought if I'm running around with a knife. I'm going to get shot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I better do something with this. So I just stuck it in a tree and kept running. Uh, but I was a track star. They weren't going to catch me, not on foot anyway. You know, um, I could run, I could do 20 mile marathons. You know, it was not a big deal for me. So, um, so I finally gave myself up. And when they brought me to the infirmary, which was on the edge of the soccer field where I gave myself up, they ran me through some picker bushes and ripped my pants. And I was kind of upset because of my own personal camouflage pants. So um, when I had a chance, I elbowed this big goon that was holding on to me in, into the, like his upper chest. And I ran away again, just to kind of prove a point. And um, this time when they caught me, I, I kind of fought back and, you know, we got in a little bit of a tussle. And uh, um, they brought me back to the infirmary, took blood to make sure I wasn't on drugs and all that. And I had to uh, go to um, stand in front of Major Ziegler. He got out of bed and came and yeah, that, that wasn't a pleasant conversation. So, um, so we actually got in a bit of an argument and I wasn't using any protocol at all. I was speaking my mind whether he liked it or not. And uh, I told him if they put me back on duty, I was just going to unload on the next plane I saw. So he took my weapons cards away. I was no longer a police officer or security or anything to do with guns. And I had to go take a battery of, uh, you know, psychological tests. So um, I went and did the tests and I, I kind of read ahead to see what they were looking for with their questions. And I, I've got a pretty good IQ. So I just went, oh, I know what they're looking for. So I answered them. You saw yeah, the pattern so that you'd line up when you were doing these multiple tests. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I just answered them the way I felt that I needed to answer them to, uh, to get out of there. And after a few days, I went and sat with the, uh, with the base psychiatrist and he said, what do you want? And I was like, what do you mean? What do I want? He said, what do you want? What do you want out of all this? And I said, I, I want to go home. I want out of the air force. And he said, all right, I can make that happen. I was like, really? And he said, yeah, he goes, it's easy. He said, I'll just write you up as basically you're immature. You don't have any business being in the service. It won't really affect you that much in civilian life. And, you know, I'll have you out of here in a few months. You'll be there for the first, uh, when they throw the first pitch for baseball. So I was like, okay, great. Um, and, but in the meantime, uh, Major Ziegler had me, man, cleaning toilets and scrubbing uh, showers and sweeping roads and just doing everything they could to embarrass me. You hadn't really thought it all through that well. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, the whole time I was just, you know, I was doing whatever they asked me to do with kind of a little smirk on my face, like, ha ha, I'm getting out of here. I really don't care. You know? So um, eventually so I made home. a, you got home. I mean, they did let yeah. you out. And, yeah. this is and when... I actually got out with an honorable discharge because I had a lot of political pull through my father. So um, Thomas, o Thomas P. Tip O'Neill, who was the uh, speaker of the house sent a congressional inquiry. My congressman did. So I ended up, uh, getting out with an honorable discharge just through a lot of political pressure. So then you get home and you've been in the military. You were expecting to have some action. You kind of wanted a license to carry and all that. And yep. so you started reading for, uh, Soldier of Fortune magazines. And use kind of burn off some of that testosterone. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I worked in a gas station, wasn't happy. I got in a lot, a lot more drinking and started getting into some drugs, nothing heavy, but, you know, smoking pot. And uh, back then uh, they had stuff called purple microdot, which was hallucinogenic, you know? So, um, but I never did like heroin or cocaine or anything like that. And um, um, yeah, I started reading Soldier of Fortune and I saw an advertisement for a mercenary school in Alabama and signed up and went down. And after a while I, found myself down in Central America working with the Contras and um, fighting communism down there. And yeah, I mean, I, I like the military life. I just got in a bad situation. So, but I also, you know, when, when I saw that UFO, it, it really, it just kind of killed my belief system, you know, and like what my parents had taught me, what the priest at church taught me, what they, you know, my commanders had all talked about. And, you know, I mean, just the whole situation, I felt I was really wrong. I had a real bad, uh, angry young man attitude. 
And, uh, you know, I'm not a really big guy, but I got an attitude. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I just, I just kind of just kept falling deeper and deeper into that dark hole of, uh, you know, just losing my soul for lack of a better term. And well, I, I consider that. that five- a little bit. I mean, when you're talking about being a mercenary, you were where uh, you didn't know this, but you were where you shouldn't have been. This, this all came up in the Iran Contra affair. And right. you were not supposed to be going across borders and, and fighting, uh, but you were. But the, it was uh, the kind of life you described where they said sleep is something you grab as you can. There is no time for sleep. And oh, yeah. it sounds like there wasn't a lot of time for food or hygiene or anything else. You were scrambling, doing what mercenaries do. Um, your health, even though you were very young, your health was just deplorable. But there was this moment where you had gone over into Nicaragua, as I understand, you weren't supposed to be there. None of you were supposed to be there. So you're at risk of death. So you're having to kind of slink around to get your way out of the country. You get into a canoe. This is going to be a 30-hour canoe trip. And you see this young woman, and this was really a profound moment like in your life. And I'd like you to talk about what was going on inside your head as you spotted this young woman holding a baby. Okay. Um, yeah, hopefully I won't tear up. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we had gone on a mission and we had come back across the border. And we were now on the Honduran side of the river. The Cocoa River divided Nicaragua and, and Honduras. So we were going to get in this dugout canoe and we had head back up to our, where we uh, jumped off, our jumping off point. And, um, and I was tail gunner. So I was the last one. I had to stay up on the banks and make sure everything was secure while everybody got down into the canoes. And I saw some movement to my left. So I just instinctively raised my rifle and drew down on her. And then I noticed, oh, it's a, it's a female. It's a civilian with a baby. So I immediately lowered my weapon. And, uh, and I saw her and she, was, she had a baby in her arm. And she was just rocking back and forth like, you know, a mother would while she was suckling her young, you know, on her left breast. And, and I was looking at her and she was just staring at me really hard. And I was, and I was looking back at her like, wow. And something just didn't seem right. And then, um, sorry, <laughs> it was really hard to talk about. <laughs> so, uh, so she had this baby in her arm that was dead and, uh, she just wasn't giving it up. You know, she was just still trying to feed her, her dead baby. And, uh, can I um, read what you wrote about that? From yeah. Here? Okay. Yeah. And, so, um, you said in your book, and this is on page 135, my soul slowly being sucked out of me, not only for my sins, but for the sins of every soldier and politician that caused her grief. I pay the price right, I paid the price right then and there on the banks of the Cocoa River for all of the crimes against her and her child. I'm still pri- paying the price to this day. Yep. <laughs> yeah. This is the price of war, whether it's illicit or sanctioned. This is the price of war. Yeah, yeah. And it was weird. She, it it took a it took a lot for me to break my steer with her and her steer with me, kind of, you know. And uh, um, you know, and and those people were were glad we were there because the communists were really slaughtering them, and they were glad we were there to help. But you know, there's still personal tragedies involved. You know, maybe overall, you know, the outcome was good, but you know, on a micro scale, it was, it was pretty harsh. So So after this was over, you came home, uh, you flew back home, you got to the airport, you had gone from, you're, you're a slender fellow, 6'1", you were 165 pounds, you went down to 132. That's really skeletal. You walked up and your mom didn't even see you standing there. She didn't even know it was you. And so let's talk about that reunion and what happened to your spirit once you're back in town, you still need this engagement in life, but there, you've been kind of damaged by this time. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, and I literally walked right up to her, and she was like looking around me to try and see her son coming down the uh, escalator, and uh, I walked right up to her, and I, and I had to get in her face and go, "Mom," and boy, the look on her face. <laughs> she was just like, "Oh my God, what happened to you?" And I was like you know, I was in a war, <laughs> you know, there wasn't much food, you know, we were working with refugees, all we, you know, literally all we ate was uh, an eight ounce cup of rice with some beans in the morning and the same in the evening. And, you know, trying to, 
trying to function as a, a human, you know, I mean, the toils of war are pretty hard on your body. You well, no sleep and your teeth, and were, your teeth were loosening and starting to, getting ready to fall out, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, nourished. Yeah, we were all really emaciated. And um, yeah, I, I could just wiggle my teeth. I mean, it was, it was pretty harsh on my body. Um, yeah. So, so the next meal that I had, um, they took me to a restaurant, but my stomach was the size of a walnut. I really couldn't eat much. And uh, the next meal, when I was home and everything, I was like, wow, I'm finally home. I got a nice rest in my, my bed and my house. It was, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> so uh, and, and, and we left Tegucigalpa. And um, basically, two, three days later, I was back home. And there was, no, there was no briefing in between. It was just war zone home. You know, so it was kind of a shock. Um, but uh, So um, then you had this was, feast. Yeah, yeah, there was this, you know, there was rice, there was pork chops, it was, I mean, there were, there was everything on the table. And, and I actually had to uh, go to the uh, bathroom and uh, just kind of collect myself because I was thinking, wow, there's so much food here. I could have fed like, you know, everybody on our unit, <laughs> you know, it was just, whoa, <laughs> you know, it was a little overwhelming. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. So eventually I got back to work, started working as an iron worker. And, uh, and I had stomach troubles for, oh, I still have stomach troubles, actually, but really bad for about six months before I really started getting my body back in some sort of shape. And, uh, and um, I was working as an iron worker, and, uh, which I loved because it was outside and I could just be my own person. I didn't have really a, a boss. It was just banging steel beams together. And uh, um, I... I just started working with more drug dealers than anything, you know. Um, I I really don't want to go in with any other mercenary stuff because the only thing that's really public is that whole Iran Contra affair. So. No, we don't have to. It just kind of okay. sets the picture what that <laughs> yeah, life so, is like. But 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 locally and stuff, I worked with a lot of drug dealers and peddled a lot of drugs with them. I just kind of kept an eye on them and babysat them, you know. Um, but um, yeah, so I was involved with that quite a bit, and uh, eventually I. Uh, um, one night I, was, I dropped some acid and um, decided, hey, wow, I, I could get killed doing this stuff. I really ought to stop doing all this because I had gotten set up for um, um, we were supposed to go down to the Philippines and do something. And uh, uh, I don't know if you want to go into a lot of detail with that, but one thing led to another and we were basically. Well, I remember I remember that part of the book just as a quick synopsis. Um, the, it was a setup. There were going yeah. to be roughly a dozen Americans killed, which would be a great outcry to the American Congress to uh, put some funds forth to Aquino because she was yeah. broke. And right. uh, basically, that's it. You were going to be traded yeah. off for some cash, essentially. Your lives were going to be. And that's when you realized, hey, this, this thing's not working for me anymore. Right, um, right. would just have you killed so that Congress could pass um, – some legislation allowing money to flow to the Philippines because she needed money. You, you started really seeing the corruption of politics in, in a oh, deeper yeah. sense there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at that point I was like, okay, I'm expendable. And the person who was helping set us up was the commander that I worked for on a previous mission. So just a lot of cloak and dagger backstabbing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just kind of had an epiphany and just said, okay, I'm done. And, um, uh, and I started getting rid of my, all my gear and a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't have had in my possession. And um, I sold this pistol to this one kid. He used it in a crime. He ended up, he was a felon, which I didn't know. And um, now I've got the uh, Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco firearms after me. I've got the state of Massachusetts after me. So I got on my motorcycle and skedaddled out to the West Coast. And uh, Well, before so, we skedaddle, I mean, yeah. this is when you say at this point in your life, you couldn't, there was no soul left in your eyes. You had soulless oh. eyes because yeah. at this point you had gotten down and you were an enforcer for drug dealers and whether it was somebody's baptism or birthday party, you guys would show up and basically uh, tap them, right? You got, you haven't paid your bill. 
and you guys were to get the money from them. This was a really harsh time in your life. Right. And I, I wouldn't say cap them. I, we, we just no, tap. Uh, I don't mean cap them. Just tap. Hey, oh, come no, tap them. I thought you said cap them. No. I said, no. No, but it, no. no, I've never murdered anybody in the no. US. Let me make <laughs> that clear. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, we just, yeah, we just strong arm him and let him know, Hey, you know, you got to pay your bill. You know, I mean, you know, back in the eighties when there was a lot of cocaine flowing and money going back and forth. Yeah. It was some pretty serious business. So, um, it was kind so, of like yeah, a it, scenes out of this, a scene out of the Sopranos, the shakedowns and making people pay up or else. And sometimes there else was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much for, yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I, w I wasn't a big guy, but, um, I, I was actually licensed to carry a firearm and, uh, as my partner was too, Massachusetts is very strict on their gun laws. And, um, um, but he was a bodybuilding Kung Fu type guy. So he was kind of the muscle and I'd always back him up and have a weapon. And, um, sometimes we pointed at people just for intimidation type thing. But, um, um, yeah. So at that point in my life, um, yeah, I, I refer to those five years as not being human, you know, I mean, just slowly lost my soul, lost my way in life. And yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> this is really how to describe. Yeah. So, so I got on my motorcycle and decided, okay, it's, it's time I changed my life and go on a different path here. So uh, I had a six day motorcycle ride from Massachusetts out to California. And uh, I just started praying, you know, hey, God, when I get to California, you know, I want the house, the kids, the wife, the picket fence, you know, and um, when I got there, uh, my bike was in a lot of disrepair from all the traveling, I needed new tires and stuff. And uh, I met a guy who was a Christian, and one thing led to another. And he was like, hey, we're having this outreach if you want to come. And I, I didn't even understand what an outreach was. And when I got there, I was really shocked at the people at the church. I mean, they were punk rockers with uh, mohawks and different colored hair and leather jackets and biker looking people. I'm like, wow, what did I get myself into here? <laughs> it's just like, wow, this is a little crazy. But, um, but the pastor was fairly young. And um, yeah, I just listened to what he said. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. This, this is my chance. So uh, were you were you all that time when you were riding and wanting these more a more normal a kind of life that had eluded you? Were you really kind of praying that you be saved from yourself more than anything, um, or were you looking for some kind of intervention? What is it you were looking uh, for? Because you, you were in a heap honest, of trouble. Honestly, uh, yeah, you know, uh, and it it. At a certain point, the FBI got involved because of the Iran-Contra affair and stuff. But that was, that was after I'd gotten to California about a month or so after. But um, no, you know what? I was just looking for normalcy. I just wanted to be a normal, regular person again, like I used to be. You know, I lost my way so much, you know, that uh, I was just looking to be a normal human again. That's all I wanted. I just wanted a nine to five job. And like I said, just family man, just be a normal person. That's all I was really well, you looking did, for. Well, you did get to be a family man. Uh, yeah, you met a yeah. Chinese woman and you ended up moving to Shanghai where her family was. And you yeah. ended up starting a family. So then you kind of, your life had to start over again. It wasn't exactly the white picket fence you were looking for, but you had some stability there in China. Talk about the yeah. Chinese chapter and right up through the point at which you really had a a terrible accident because you were still looking for this adrenaline rush and you'd become a motorcycle racer by this time. Right. Well, I, I actually started racing when I was in California. Mm -hmm. So I went on the national circuit and, you know, yeah. went around the country racing and all. But um, in 1991, I met my wife or my future wife and, uh, and she was actually pretty cool. She helped me work on my motorcycle and stuff. She was a mechanical engineer and uh, yeah, I fell in love and life was good. We had a house in Huntington beach and, for nine years, uh, everything was great. And then um, as my kids got older, I noticed that all the girls and the boys and stuff, the young kids, they were just a bunch of potheads hang out at the beach surfing and stuff. It was Huntington Beach, Surf City. So I thought, you know, hey, we ought to move somewhere else because I don't want our kids falling into that, you know. So uh, she had been going back and forth to China through, uh, through her uh, employer, and they finally moved her over. And I just gave up my career. I was working in the petrochemical industry in Southern California. So I, um, I just said, yeah, I'll give up my career. Let's follow yours and see what happens. And uh, with the idea of once I got to China, because there was so much manufacturing going on, that uh, I'd somehow start some sort of business and with no business background whatsoever. <laughs> but, uh, but I had ambition anyways. So, um, 
so we got to uh, we got to China, and um, I guess she was originally from Shanghai, and the Shanghai women are very domineering, strong-headed, um, very non-typical Asian Chinese type thing that you would think of. They're definitely not subservient <laughs> um, to the point of the guys would hold a woman's purse, you know, and you know, yeah, it was just it was kind of funny. <laughs> so, uh, well, you said you weren't intimidated to have an equal intellectually, and yeah, you got yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. She had a, you know, I had, while I was working, I, I helped put her through school. So now she had an MBA degree. She had a, a master's in mechanical engineering. And yeah, you know, I liked living with somebody that was smart. You know, I've dated a, a few women that, you know, they didn't even know what World War II was about. You know, I mean, they knew something about Germans and Jews. You know, <laughs> it's just, I mean, just, you know, some people that just really weren't educated. So I wasn't looking for somebody like that. So, so it worked out. But when she got back into China, it was like she was in her own element again. And um, just our whole relationship really changed drastically once we got over there. Did you end and, up uh, carrying her purse? No, <laughs> no, I told her I, I would not carry her purse. So, <laughs> so that was fine. But, uh, but um, yeah, she just really started talking down to me a lot. And, you know, why don't, you know, you need to get a job, you need to do this and do that. And, you know, and I, I was trying to get some business opportunities going and um, just, yeah, the whole relationship just started falling apart at that point. We just, and it didn't fall apart. We just grew apart, basically. Yeah. She was working a lot with her company. And I was uh, raising the kids while I was trying to do work and manufacture stuff. And, you know, just kind of playing the Mr. Mom role, I guess. And, uh, and eventually uh, thing, your affections went elsewhere. And she took exception to that, of course. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, you know, you know, I guess turnarounds for... Turnarounds for your play. She had a boyfriend too. So there you go. Yeah. So, uh, um, so we, we separated for nine months, got back together, figuring, you know, it's the best thing for the kids. And uh, yeah, I caught her nine months later. She still had a boyfriend, but whatever. So, um, uh, and you know, actually I wasn't all that upset about it. I just figured out yeah, I probably deserve that. So, you know, um, but we just, yeah, we just grew apart, you know, year after year after year, we got further and further apart. So uh, uh, it got to the point where I was really depressed um, and you know, it's not supposed to do drugs in China, but I was smoking a lot of uh, hashish because pot was really hard to find for some, whatever reason. And uh, one day I thought, wow, I think that beam out in the garage will hold my weight, you know, thinking about hanging myself because I was just really, really down. And uh, I thought, what am I doing? Screw that. I'm not going to let, you know, somebody else put me in that state. So when she came home that night, after uh, dinner, I just said, that's it. I'm done. Asked her for a divorce. And that was that. We split up at that point. So um, came back to the U.S. and had to start life over. And, you know, she's very much about money. So I said, and we, we had we had done a lot of um, uh, house flipping over there. Now, along the way, after you got a divorce, you didn't want to leave the girl. So you ended up as kind of a bodyguard having to do with, um, you know, well-known people that were coming in to tour, musicians in particular. So you're hanging out as a bodyguard with all, you know, Elton John and Celine Dion and all these other famous people at that time. And that was sort of a segue, as I understand it, job before you yep. came back to the United States. Do you have anything to say about that? Um, yeah, it, and it was kind of a part-time job because I was also working, um, I had worked um, kind of under the table for a company called Shipley's Consulting, but I didn't have a degree, so I, I couldn't go any further with that job. Um, I was doing some training, motorcycle racing, I was training new racers, and then on, um, every now and then, every few months, uh, singers would come into Shanghai, so like I said, well, maybe not Elton John, I, I never bought a to him, but I got to hang out with Tiger Woods for a week, uh, Celine Dion, Beyonce, you know, just you know, Avril Lavigne, Eric Clapton, the Rolling Stones. I mean, it was, it was actually pretty cool, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, you know, sometimes we uh, bodyguard executives and um, we get in some pretty tight situations with them because they were usually there to fire somebody and it usually got pretty violent. So, um, but yeah, I mean, and at what I, point? At what point did you? Um, because you were also restoring these motorcycles. You had a, a little thriving business there, and you were yeah. racing. And you you really took a bad fall, and you broke a lot of bones in your body, and had quite a long time in healing. At what point did that happen? That was uh, back to the U.S. That was probably about five or six years before I came back to the U.S. And yeah, I, I crashed. I crashed two weekends in a row, and. Uh, 
it took me about six months before I could walk right. <laughs> it was, I was pretty beat up. Yeah. And um, stupid me, I crashed really bad. And then the next week was a race or excuse me, two weeks away was a race. So the next weekend I wanted to practice some more, even though my leg was so swelled up, I could barely walk. The bike had flipped on top of me and, and crushed my, my left side. But, uh, you know, races aren't known for being real smart. They just get back on and do it again. So, <laughs> um, so I did Kinda that. Like I cracked the rodeo. It. Yeah, 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 very much. So yeah, yeah. Get kicked by the bull and get right back on. So, yeah. So, so you came um, back to the U.S. and you found some work. You start flipping houses. Ultimately, your daughters yep. were reunited with you. And ultimately, your, your, your ex, the woman who became your ex, um, really was very upset with you for a long time. And she had her own moment and came around to seeing you yep. in a way, which really started bringing a type of grace into your life, maybe for the first time. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, when I came back to the U.S., I, I just remember saying, man, all I want is some peace. I just need some inner peace. You know, it was just so much turmoil for the past, you know, like 22 years of being married. And just, you know, our relationship was always a little rocky. But, um, yeah, I just wanted some peace and quiet and just to have a nice, peaceful life. So um, uh, my daughter was in nursing school. She's a nurse now, actually, and she's really having a hard time dealing with COVID. She's she's. Uh, she's a charge nurse on a PCU unit and it's really wearing on her. So, um, and my other daughter is a makeup artist, but um, when I got her back from her mom, she was really depressed. Uh, I had actually planned on moving to Uruguay. I had a ranch down there. Dude, I was going to move down there with a, a girl that I had known in China. And I went back and, and got her paperwork squared away and brought her to the U S and then I'd known that girl for a while and she just kind of, screwed me, stole from me and ran back to China. So, um, so I ended up getting custody of my youngest daughter and I sold my ranch in Uruguay and for two years I didn't work just so I could be with her every day and just kind of get her out of her depression and make sure she wasn't going to harm herself. And, uh, um, and her mother was really, really strict. And a lot of Chinese moms, you know, helicopter moms, I guess you call them, was very strict on her. I said, Hey, listen, we're in New Hampshire, live free or die is our motto, our state motto. So I said, all you got to do is stay a B average. And that's all I care about. You don't have to be an A student. I don't care. Just get B's, get through school, get into a college, do whatever you want to do in life and uh, just enjoy yourself. So we did a lot of fishing and camping and um, yeah, we, I taught her how to use a bow and arrow. <laughs> so we were just practicing archery and just having a good time for two years until she graduated. And um, she went to art school and eventually went out to Hollywood and um, became a uh, makeup artist out there. And, you know, she worked in the industry out there. So um, so she moved back to uh, New Hampshire and now she's uh, uh, an instructor at a makeup school. So so she got her life together finally. So that's good. And like I said, my other daughter, she, you know, she uh, got her career together as a nurse and she's doing well as, you know, as well. But they, they both moved back in with me here in my house. So it was all three of us again. Because when we were in China, it was basically all three of us there because um, my ex had worked so much that she would hardly ever have meals with us in the evening. She was always doing business dinners or whatever. And, uh, um, you know, maybe once or twice a week, maybe she'd sit down and have a meal with us type thing. So, But throughout these years, you kept being hunted down by people who wanted to talk to you about the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident. Uh, and. Yeah. They'd pop up here one year, a few years had passed. They'd pop up again as another person was getting onto the story because, again, it, was, it turned out it was actually so well documented. And you had at times, I remember one time, a flashback where you were just frozen. And you never, I don't think you ever really understood what that experience did to you because you were frozen and time stood still even when the event itself was occurring. Have you put it together in terms of what that did to you, besides the the feeling that you a betrayal, that there was a reality that no one told you about, and that actually they tried to keep you from talking about at that time, how yeah. did this all end up placing itself in your life and driving these events? Well, yeah, I just really avoided the whole subject, and you know, kind of the world that I was working in. You know, I was working with some intel people here and there, and I, 
I just I just wanted nothing to do with RAF Bentwaters, Woodbridge, the UFO incident. I just shunned it completely. And and I stayed in touch with Larry Warren for a while because we were every now he he was only a few hours from my house. So every now and then when I was on my way to this mercenary training camp, I'd stop in and we'd have some beers. And um, there was a couple of times we just you know just go down and just go out drinking and have a good time type thing. And he would tell me, yeah, you know, here's what's going on. I'm trying to write a book. And I was like, man, good for you, but leave me out of it. You know, I want nothing to do with it. And uh, um, so I think it was right around the early 2000s when Georgina Bruni um, started writing her book and she got in touch with me. And I was like, man, I don't even know what I'm supposed to talk about on this case. I, you know, um, so I had her um, give me Colonel Halt's phone number and I called Colonel Halt and said, hey, you know, I, I hope you remember me. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember, what, you know, the, that night, and that incident. And I said, OK, I said, well, what am I supposed to say to this girl? And he and he blatantly said, well, that's just it, Steve. Nobody cares. Say, you know, tell her your story. You know, nobody seems to mind. I was like, okay, fine. So I, I told her my story and didn't really talk to anybody after that for quite some time. I talked to Linda Moulton Howe one time and uh, I talked with Paul Eno, who has a show um, called Behind the Paranormal. And uh, I did like a little three-part series when I was in China. And he had a couple other people on, Larry Warren and a couple other people. And we talked about that, but I just shunned it all. And I, uh, I've done a couple of uh, guest spots with Paulino on his show, mm -hmm. but I had the caveat, I'll be a guest host on your show, but I never, ever want to talk about Rendlesham. And he's like, okay, fair enough. You know? And, uh, and about a year ago, I, I approached him and said, Hey, I, I think I'm about ready to talk about this. And he's like, really? Why? And I said, well, I said, you know, I've shunned it for all these years and there's such a mess. Everybody hates each other. And there's all these innuendos back and forth of who, who was there, who wasn't, you know, who was involved. And in particular, Larry. And, uh, um, and, and I can't say anything about that whole three nights, whether Larry was involved, wasn't involved, because I wasn't there. And I'm not going to talk secondhand. If it's not, if I didn't see it, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to speculate, you know. So, um, so I talked with him and he said, well, yeah, we were thinking about writing a book about some UFOs. So I started to write a book and it, it was just a few chapters. It was going to be in his book. But then I looked at it and thought, no, nah, I really don't want to be like just a chapter in somebody else's book. I want to do my own book. So I talked with him about it and he said, hey, you know, that's fine. And um, I kind of sat on the book for four or five months, you know, maybe even more. And I just didn't do anything with it. And, uh, and it was really difficult to even go there because the way my memory works, I get a really acute memory. It's almost like I get a videotape always flipping. That's why when I was talking about what I did, I, I was literally looking at that girl. Um, um, so I can, I can remind, rewind my memory like a videotape and just watch it, you know, in, in great detail. So it was really hard for me to write the book because I had to go back through a lot of bad memories and visuals to, to get all the way back there and run all the way back forward through it. It, it's, it wasn't easy. So, um, and yeah, my, uh, my, da my daughter uh, uh, and her boyfriend had gotten in a fight and he broke up with her during her birthday and everything. So at two in the morning, I went down to console her. And <laughs> that's when I butt dialed Paula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I butt dialed her. So she called me the next day. And like I said, you know, she just encouraged me and I showed her what I had and she goes, wow, you, you got a pretty good talent for writing. Um, and she's like, but you can't just stop here. Um, you you got to finish it. So uh, she had about so, three or four. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, how does, how does it really finish? I mean, in the end of the book, it was really sweet. You brought it all together about what you think this is all about, because there are other things that we didn't discuss, such as being literally in Thailand out in a fishing boat as the tsunami was yeah. mounting and taking place in the tragedy that happened after that as you all tried to get out of Thailand, which influenced your daughter. So many people so damaged, influenced her uh, to become a nurse. I mean, there was a lot more. Repeatedly, you should have probably not been alive or you yeah, should I, I can probably I can probably count a good eight times where I really don't know why I'm still here. Yep. Um, I, I don't know. You can't see here, but I'd gotten shot in the jaw here. And um, I had just looked back and the bullet here, if I wasn't looking back at it, it hit here and I wouldn't be with us. You know? yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, just stuff like that. 
Um, I, I kind of, I think I joked in my book that uh, when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to have to buy my guardian angel a big, <laughs> a big beer and sit down and have a talk. <laughs> you know? Probably a keg looking at your life. But yeah, what does it all mean to you? I mean, tying it all back together from the day you saw that UFO and you were just sort of frozen there and had these flashbacks. You still don't probably know what was going on, what that was all about to nope. today and everything that happened in between. How does that come full circle? Well, you know, you know, I had a career path in mind. I had a path for my life in mind. And that incident just kind of interrupted everything, put me on a completely different path. But um, I, I don't know. I just got to say maybe spiritually, somehow outside influences just pushed me to the point that I guess I needed to go to the breaking point of, okay, I give up. And, uh, you know, I, I got my, for lack of a better term, became human again and got my soul back and uh, just started being a good person. You know, my wife had mentioned one time, she's like, you know, you're kind of weak. I was like, what? She goes, yeah, you know, we're trying to do some deals and stuff. You need to back me up and this and that, you know, you're, you know, you're just kind of off in the corner. I was like, you don't want to know the person I used to be, though. I, I'm trying, I've tried very hard not to be that person and be a regular human again and try to be mild mannered and be meek you know, and um, just not be so evil and mean. And, you know, it's, it, it's really hard. Uh, it's really easy to be evil. Let's put it that way. It's, it's a lot harder to try and be good. <laughs> so well, let me ask uh, you about that, because here we have a world that's developing. And this hmm. has to do with masculinity in general. Here you have males and females, you have hmm. the males that are wired with uh, and I'm not trying to make this a cliche, but in fact, we are wired differently and men mm -hmm. are wired very focused and also the testosterone and the energy and the wanting to push the limits more. And we're going more and more into a world where that's not really required, where even war is coming down uh, to technology uh, yeah. rather than human beings. What would you say, being the young man you were that was disappointed, but let's just say for any young man, how do you press yourself up against the edge without really going to the dark side, endangering yourself, endangering others? If you could look at it and construct it now, or if you had sons instead of daughters, how would you help them navigate this world where the girls are graduating from college in greater numbers? Uh, jobs are even. A guy doesn't have anything given to him just because he's a guy anymore. Right, right. Yeah, it's a changing world, definitely. And, and um, uh, I, I actually took a friend of mine and it was homeless because, the, man, the, the legal system and, you know, he had a child out of wedlock and he was just he was just beat up. This kid was just mentally beat up. So I sponsored him for nine years. I had him at my house and fed him and clothed him and finally got him a job and he had some legal issues we got through and stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, they, I think they ought to have male support groups out there, honestly, because men are always, oh yeah, you know, I'm a man, you know, I don't show emotions, but you know, you need to talk to people. Um, you know, if nothing else, I hope this book inspires people that, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter how beat up you are and you know, what's happened to you. you just, you know, there's one of the strongest words, I think, in the English language is hope. So just never give up hope. Just just muddle through it. Keep going. It's going to get better, you know. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of teen suicides and stuff like that. And, man, I just, man, that just kills me. You know, it just breaks my heart, you know. Um, and nothing is that bad. I've been in some bad situations, you know, and uh, nothing's that bad, you know. So, uh, yeah, well, I mean. I know you don't know this, but my husband wrote a book. Um, I'm just bringing it up because this is the same thing he's saying is where does a man put his energy now? Um, how yeah. does a man express all these masculine things that you're born with? It's, it's your, it's, it's that are part of who you are and as, a, as an experience to be a male uh, here on earth. And he wrote a book called The Spiritually Confident Man about how we start looking at our value, at how men start looking at their value in this new world. And so who knows, maybe you two can hook up at some point and, and chat about it because this is, this is a challenging time for everybody, but I think maybe even more so for, for men than for women now. Yeah, so and, and I, I think that, you know, if I was a young man, I, I, you know, like you said, if I had sons, I'd just say, hey, you know, spiritually get yourself in line. And it doesn't matter what religion you are. If you're Jewish, be the best, you know, Jewish person you can be or Islamic or Catholic, whatever it is, you know, get, get yourself in line spiritually. 
because you know with the way things are going in the world who knows you know you could croak at any minute you know it's a pretty challenging world out there for for young people and uh um you know if you're going to be a dad be the best dad you know try you know try to be uh, as faithful as is you know be faithful you know make a commitment and stick to it you know and i think that's the biggest thing i see is a lot of people are not really willing to make a commitment these days you know whether it's in a, a marriage or a relationship you know there's a lot of a lot of babies out of wedlock i mean it's just you know um and, and not to be I guess, morally superior, but, you know, people just got to kind of get the moral compass back in line a little bit in this country, I think, you know. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, it's something that I've been writing about and giving a great deal of consideration to. We have to find our way back. We kind of let it yeah. slip there. Um, <laughs> I think the last few decades, really. So I just want to say, uh, Stephen, thank you for sharing, you know, this kind of intimate journey of your own life. We didn't get into the gory details of it because people can read the book. Um, yep. And when we're talking about, you really did, you did lose your soul there and you gained it back. And anyone looking at you now, this mild natured, uh, articulate man, you would never guess where you've been, but you've been to some places that hollowed you out, but you found your way back. And I think that's the story. And that's why it's called Rendlesham to Redemption. So I want to thank you so much uh, for giving us your time and, and your, your, your from the heart story. All right. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for uh, giving me the time. Thank you, Stephen. So everybody, you can take a peek at the book, Rendlesham to Redemption by Stephen LaPlume. Um, I think it's just such a heart-rending story about how any one of us can lose our way. But underneath it, if that heart's still beating, even if we can't even so see the soul in our eyes anymore, there's still a chance for rebuilding and redemption just by knowing that that heart is seeking some higher ground. So definitely an interesting read. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.